Welcome to Let's Get Two, the baseball podcast from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. And welcome, welcome, welcome. I am your host, James Christopher, and this is Let's Get Two. And thanks for stopping in to listen to our fun little baseball podcast. Got a fun show ahead of you today. We're going to talk about a, a area of baseball that maybe isn't discussed all that much. The Collegiate Woodbat Leagues. So what is the Collegiate Woodbat League? Well, one, like I said, it's one of the more underexposed form of baseball. And it's, again, played all over the country. And what it serves as is an important step that will bridge the gap between college players and then entering either affiliated baseball or independent minor league baseball. Now, so those of you who have not been to a college baseball game, one of the biggest differences between a college game and then going to a pro game is the sound. And it's the sound of the bat because in college, they don't use a wooden bat. They don't mostly for the expense. A lot of college baseball programs, you know, they don't make really any money. It's not necessarily a revenue generating sport. And most programs don't have the the expense to keep buying new bats. And so they used to use an aluminum and now they use kind of a composite bat, which means you don't get a crack, you get more of a ping. And so a collegiate summer league or collegiate wood bat league, as they're sometimes called, Basically, it allows really, really good, generally sophomores go play during the summer and get used to kind of the routine that comes with being a professional ball player and also using the wooden bat. It's funny because I was someone who thought he knew a lot about baseball, but really didn't know about collegiate summer leagues and some of the more famous ones like the Cape Cod League until the movie Summer Catch. I'm going to keep talking about Summer Catch on this show because you guys should really be watching it because it's honestly good. Yes, it's cheesy. It's maybe too overly sexy for a baseball film, but Freddie Freddie Prince Jr. is really good in it. Jessica Biel is Jessica Biel, and it's just a great movie. It's fun. It's light, and the baseball on it it is honestly really, really good. So that's how I learned about it. And we were excited to bring two teams onto our show that we'll have later on. One is the Savannah Bananas, and they are kind of doing a lot of crazy cool things. Some of it we love. Some of it we're like, eh, I don't know. But they're doing a lot of crazy cool stuff with the fan experience in baseball. They are not afraid to experiment, and I love everything about that. But we also are going to bring on the Chatham Anglers, which used to be the Chatham A's which was the team featured in Summer Catch. And so we're real, really thrilled about that. Now, we saw some baseball this week, but I want to talk about one game in particular. We made it out to the Round Rock Express's military appreciation game last week and just really, really major big kudos to all the folks at Round Rock Express for really doing a great job of honoring our fallen and honoring our military. And it began... The minute you part, they had a military brass band playing. They had uh, a really cool police car that was dedicated to veterans parked out front. And, and that's really where it started. You know, one of the cool things about minor league baseball, and some, some MLB teams do this too, where they let little leaguers go out for the anthem and then they meet a player and they get their ball signed. Well, for the military appreciation thing and with the focus being on Memorial Day, 
They had sons and daughters of servicemen and women whose parents, I think, were deployed, go out. And rather than take a baseball out to get signed, they left a pair of boots representing soldiers, sailors, and Marines and airmen who had lost their life. And so when you look out on this field with nine pairs of boots just sitting there, it it was an impressive sight. It was humbling and I thought a great way of really showing the sacrifice. Throughout the night, they called attention to different veterans and different uh, those who had lost their life. At the beginning, they asked all veterans to stand up. And and I'm not going to lie to you. um, It's it's a pretty cool experience to stand up in a full stadium and feel like what, what, however small my own sacrifice was, was appreciated. It's a really, really cool moment. And they did it throughout the game. They honored female vets and that a chair in the stadium that was reserved for to honor the POW and MIA. The event was in honor of and presented by an organization that we're going to have on the show a little later on called 22 Kill. And there was a moment during the uh, between innings where they put photos of all of the GIs that after serving and coming home and not able to get the access to the health that they needed, took their own lives. I mean, it was heavy. Uh, It definitely brought tears. And I just want to commend the Round Rock Express for taking, you know, what should always be a fun time, right? Like baseball should be a time at the park where you forget about problems and you forget about things that are wrong and you go out and you just – get a chance to enjoy yourself and enjoy being with your family. But I'm really glad that they and so many other teams took the time to remind us of why we're able to do that. So thank you to everybody in the Round Rock organization. We're going to have some, we're going to have more of y'all on, on the show the rest of the year and we'll continue to thank you for that. But it really was an incredible, incredible experience as someone who served. I was proud to be among so many people and, I'm always going to acknowledge the fact that my veteran experience and my deployment experience pales in the horror compared to those that came before me and those that came after me in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, the more that we can honor those sacrifices, the better. So thank you to Tim Jackson, the Round Rock Express GM and and Andrew Feltz for letting Let's Get Too Good out there and cover the event and just for, again, putting on a really, really really incredibly touching night. But before we move into the show, we do have to talk about another member of the Express, and we want to send out a really cool congratulations to Round Rock Express utility infielder Jack Mayfield. Now, Jack is that kind of baseball player that we love. He was an undrafted free agent. He has been in the minors for over six years, played something like over 600 games in in affiliated minor league baseball. And due to injuries to Jose Altuve and Aledmus Diaz for the Astros, got his call up. And watching, you know, his wife, they kept her camera on her through the whole game. He got a double in his first at-bat, ended up having an RBI in the game. But it just really speaks to no matter what you're doing, no matter what your life pursuit is, you can't give up. You can't stop. You got to keep working because you just never know when your break is going to come. And so, Jack, you know, we hope you stick up there. We feel like this won't be your first taste of the majors. So congratulations to you and your family. From the bleachers, the Let's Get To Game of the Week. 
while at the Round Rock Express, we were moved when we were introduced to the group 22 Kill, and we really wanted to bring them on the show. And we're excited to have Sarah Compton join us from the organization to talk a little bit about their mission and how we can help. Sarah, thanks for joining Let's Get Two. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I do work for 22 Kill, and we are a nonprofit organization. Our mission is to create a community that raises awareness and combats suicide through empowerment. Uh, we empower veterans, first responders, and their family through traditional and non-traditional therapies that we offer. So I was wondering if you could, because I'm not sure, you know, we live in a really weird, not weird, it's a good weird, but where the American public is very open about thanking for service and about acknowledging the fact that we do have veterans coming home from combat. But I'm not really sure they fully grasp the fact that for a lot of them, the war isn't over. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about really what's going on with our veteran population today. Yes, thank you so much for, for bringing that up. It's it's such a difficult subject for, for so many people to talk about. Uh, there's so many layers of of why it's it's not spoken about by a lot of active duty uh, service members in the service because there's a fear and a stigma that they may um, you know lose their jobs or or may not be able to carry on their job in the same capacity. Um, I know you know personally I lost my husband, an active duty Marine, to suicide in 2014, and and that was a large part of of why we weren't able to really seek treatment previously because. We were scared that something was going to happen to his job. And looking back, that clearly was not the right thing to do. So one of the largest things that we try to do is let it be known that it's okay to, to start that conversation and that there's lots of people who are feeling that way and there's lots of resources available if you are feeling that way. Yeah, I, I definitely understand the stigma and, and it's a stigma that I think – Somehow veterans today who are more open about having you know PTSD or whatever we want to call it, it's the same thing veterans have been dealing with since there's been war. We're just at a point in society now where we can actually talk about it. Absolutely. And it's not just a veteran problem. It's also a first responder problem. Those guys and gals go out there and they serve every single day. And the the sights and the sounds and the, the horrors that they're exposed to is – is something that's very difficult for for them to kind of unpack and feel safe about um, talking about. So we we definitely want them to know that we are here and we can offer support and services. Well, first of all, we are very sorry for your husband's loss, and I think anybody that served has been touched by uh, this particular, really just epidemic since uh, you know particularly in more recent times. So how, how can people find you and how can people help? Well, thank you so much for that. Um, so there are a number of ways that people can help. I think first and foremost is to spread the word. Let it be known that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to talk about mental health. Let's try to reshape the conversation in our everyday lives. And then beyond that, um, we have a website, uh, www.22killed.com. And that kind of goes deeper into the programs that we offer and uh, ways that people can make donations if they want to, or maybe volunteer, come out to the events that we're having. And we will have that link in the description of this podcast. So we will make sure everybody can find it. Um, and is there any other, anything else you think we need to know about the organization going forward or how else we can help? 
Well, we have events all the time. So um, on the website, we'll have posted and we also have a Facebook page um, our, and all that other social media. Um, I'm not in charge of that, so I don't really know <laughs> the social media stuff. Um, but we have all sorts of um, beyond the, you know, the big events that you see, we have a tribal council, which is a peer support. Uh, we have that um, the first and third Tuesday of every month. And that's um, it's run by veterans for veterans. And so that's at our uh, Dallas office. And we'd love for, for anybody to come in and check it out and just, you know, really be part of the conversation and, and in any way that they want to get involved, we welcome it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on our show, and thank you so much for taking this task on. I know it can't be easy. Thank you so much for supporting us and, and getting the word out. We really appreciate it. To the first 10,000 fans, the Let's Get To Promotion of the Week. So for our promo section this week, we're going to stay in the Class A Advanced level and talk about some of the fun promotions that some of these teams have going on. This weekend, the Lake Elsinore Storm will be having their Hispanic Heritage Weekend, while the Lancaster Jethawks are going to take their night and turn it into a Cancer Awareness Night on June the 1st. This weekend, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans will be having prom night, and so they want everybody to come to the game dressed like they did when they went to their prom. That sounds awesome. I think anybody with one of those blue, powder blue tuxedos with the ruffled shirts should get at least a like a free beer or something, particularly because they'll be crying over whoever was with them, leaving them when they see them in said tuxedo. And on June 1st, the Modesto Nuts are going to celebrate, well, the most famous veg- vegetable? I think it's a vegetable. And they're having Mr. Potato Head Night on June the 1st. So get out there and celebrate the world's most famous, I I think a potato is a vegetable. Those of you who've seen me know I don't eat a lot of salads, so not that you put a potato in a salad, although I do know my way around a french fry. But again, one one of the best parts about minor league baseball are some of the promotions and theme nights. And so look up the team near you, find out what they're doing this weekend, and get out and see a ball game. Go, go Astros, a focus on H-Town Hardball. We are back in our Go, go Astros segment with contributor, Astros genius, Mr. Andy Tumcheston. How are you, Andy? Doing well. Happy Memorial Day. Yes, and to you, and Memorial Day, I know when you're talking about being a baseball fan, is a big earmark or, or kind of maybe the first stop to kind of do a gut check of where you are. So where are the Astros? Well, I mean, historically, it's been the day where you can actually kind of assess where you are and what you need to do if you're a contender, if you're not a contender. Um, it's probably a little bit less important these days with the wild card um, additions and a team like the Rangers being only two and a half games out. Uh, I, I mean, kind of displays that they're a joke of a team and that somehow they probably still think they're contenders. Um, but let's talk about the Astros because I know Major League is not necessarily my beat. Um you know, if you're evaluating it based on the criteria, they're in first place. They've got a six-and-a-half game lead, um, a plus 90 run differential. Uh, they're set up well um, to this point. Now, obviously, uh, as you know, I, I have discussed offline, um, there's some concern with injuries. There's con- some concerns with uh, particular individuals not performing to expectations. But um, right now they're sitting in a really good position. And even with the injuries, they've won three series in a row, four series in a row. 
Um, and three of those series have been against the Red Sox twice, um, or two of those series have been against the Red Sox twice, and right now they're 1-0 up on the Cubs. Yeah, and like we had made the joke that it's the, you know, the Round Rock Express or the, I guess the Round Rock Astros or the Houston Express are in, in particular tonight with Martin on the bump and then Garrett Stubbs getting his major league debut. First of all, how cool was it to watch, you know, Super Jack yesterday get his, just, I mean, talk about a great first day or first game as a major leaguer. Well, with Mayfield, it's, it's, um, you watch him in spring training and it's, he's always one of those guys that the starters are out and then the scoring really starts happening and you get updates on your phone if you can't watch it on TV. And it's always Mayfield with a single Mayfield scores on an error. And he's always somebody that seems to be making things happening. And, you know, it's, it's always great when you call somebody up and, you know, the way the media covers it um, with Julia Morales sitting there next to his wife, um, and just the emotions were palpable. Um, it, it's, but you know, it's back to your point about the um, Round Rock Astros or the Houston Express. If you had told us um, at the beginning of season on Memorial Day that uh, Colin Hugh, George Springer, uh, Diaz, Altuve, Stassi, and um, that group would be out, and you'd replace them with Brady Rogers, Derek Fisher, Jack Mayfield, Garrett Stubbs, and Corbin Martin. Um, I don't think anybody would have guessed that that pattern of call ups, um, but you know, to the, to to this point, it's working out so far. Okay. Yeah, I think if you would have said that would have been the situation, we would have said, well, as long as we're keeping it close till the All Star break, much less, you know, sitting with a six and a half game lead. Oakland did what they did. I'm, I'm still not a big believer in Oakland, but, um, you know, yeah, I think six and a half. Now let's talk a little bit about the injuries. So. Uh, Altuve, I guess, is going to get one more rehab start. Is that is that kind of the rumor? That uh, yeah, I, I think he he played um, yesterday. He played on Sunday, um, and so I think he's going to get one more start today, and then head back to Houston. Uh, I think the issue, and I think part of the reason he's getting another start is that he's still not really doing all that much with the bat. Uh, I believe he's had two singles in um, the the two games that he's played. Um, and from what I've read from some kind of first-hand accounts, it appears to be he's still kind of in the same place he was in Houston before the injury, shuffling his feet in the batting box, not having a real good idea of what he wants to do when he gets up there and being a little befuddled uh, by whatever's being thrown his way. So, you know, his track record speaks for itself, and I'm not terribly worried about him, but the longer it goes into the season, you know, it's kind of like Garrett Cole. Love watching him strike out – uh, 12 guys, but we're two months into the season and he's sporting an ERA of four and a half. Um, so it, you're seeing some good things and you're seeing some not so good things. And at some point you're, you just wonder if with Altuve, he's got a lot of miles on his body for only being on his, I guess this is age 28 playing year. Um, is this the beginning of start of a breakdown or is it just a small speed bump? I think it's probably just a small speed bump, but it is something I'm sure the Astros are watching pretty intently. And I think that, you know, more than anything else is trying to get his confidence built back up. So when he does come back, he can kind of hit the ground running. Yeah. The word that I've, that I've heard, like listening to Jeff Luno on uh, several different outlets is that his cage work has been the same old Altuve. It's when he steps into an actual batter batting practice when, you know, live game action is happening is when the issue is. And so, yeah, it seems to me that if with Mayfield holding it down somewhat in the bottom of the lineup, 
continuing to produce. You know, if you've got to give him one or two more rehab starts against AAA pitching, that seems to be the smart thing to do. Well, and I also can tell you I'd rather see Jack Mayfield playing second than Yuli um, Gurriel ever again. Isn't that amazing? Because he will play a dynamic third base and then cannot function at second base. And you would you would think that second base is the easier defensive position. It, it's, it, you know, it, it is. I think part of it, though, is that every time he's been at second, Tyler White's been at first in between the two of them. <laughs> Maybe Tyler doesn't speak Spanish. And maybe Alex hasn't taught um, Yuli um, how to speak Tyler. So, you know, there's a miscommunication thing there. But I've seen more things just drop between those two players in these two months, really in the last three weeks, uh, than I saw all of the last two seasons. And every one of those things has, I think, led to an Astros loss. Um, Absolutely. As, yeah. They just it bounces in front of them. Yeah. Um, now, the, 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 now, the big injury that – obviously is the concern is the the Springer injury. How worried are you about that? And, you know, have you heard anything as far as a real timetable? Because the, the Astros have gotten to be like the University of Texas when it comes to injuries. They don't tell people anything. Well, it's discomfort. Whenever you hear discomfort, it could be anything from Lance McCullers being out for a year and a half to um, <laughs> literally I'm going to miss tomorrow. Yeah. It's all discomfort. Um, and I thought when you said important bat, you were talking about Max Stassi because, you know, I don't know how we're going to survive without his contributions. I, I don't know that. Rob- who's going to replace that buck 30 batting average? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's robust to say the least. I think he has zero extra base hits too. Um, you know, with Springer, I mean, he's obviously to, you know, give him some un- unnecessary pressure, the straw that stirs the drink for the Astros this year. Um, they'll survive. I don't think they're going to thrive with Derek Fisher out there. I think it. Um, a lot of people are scratching their head that it's not uh, Jordan Alvarez yet, or even um, Mr. Tucker. But uh, you know, the Astros do value those arbitration years, and they value the the rights. And so, you know, if if we're struggling into the next week or two, and Springer doesn't look like he's on his way back anytime soon, I expect probably a change there. Um, Everything I've heard is that he's going to be at least two weeks um, in regards to Springer. Um, that's what uh, the local media here is saying in Houston. That's what I've been able to read on MLB and a few other places. Uh, it's hamstrings, and hamstrings are tough. And when you've got somebody like George who the best part about him is also the worst part about him, he goes all out all the time. Um, it, it's hard to say, hey, go 80%, yeah. save the leg. I, that's not that's not him as a player. Um, he wouldn't be George Springer if he wasn't swinging from the seat of his pants or diving after every ball that he could possibly dive for. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope it's back soon, but I also hope he comes back healthy because it's far more important to have him healthy in August and September than it is in June and July. It's interesting because one of the big debates going is which Astro can you least afford to lose? And, you know, I, I, the argument for Springer is there. The argument is – is for Altuve is there, but really and truly, if you look at the last, well, two and a half years now, or I guess two and a third years now, Correa being out is the one that really impacted the wins and losses. And so I do feel like with a lot of outfield depth, um, I, I, although I don't think you can count Alvarez into that outfield depth because he's really not demonstrated the ability to play the outfield. Um, it does seem like it's the one that we can continue to miss and match. I think once Bregman starts hitting the way we know he can hit, and if Marisnik keeps up 
what he's doing, I think that they will be able to survive that injury and let Springer come back fully healthy. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up Bregman um, because I know you're talking about his batting average because he's like at 265, 266 right now. His OPS is 933, right? and that's that's struggling. So he's still slugging, I think, over 500%. Um, he's still getting on base. Uh, almost four, uh, almost forty percent of the time, three ninety one. Uh, so, even though he's not hitting for a high average, he's contributing in every other way. I think to your point with Correa, what he does for the Astros to help them win is he solidifies the defense up the middle. You don't have to worry about who's playing shortstop. And even though Bregman is fully capable of playing shortstop, if Correa is there, then Bregman plays third, and your entire left side of the infield is good and it's solid. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned before, second base is a lesser defensive position. And if Tyler White can man first, what it really affects is our ability to score runs. But if we can prevent runs and we continue to pitch the way our starters mostly pitch and our bullpen, even with um, the last couple of days notwithstanding, um, has pretty much been locked down, um, you can win games that way. You're just not going to win them 10 to 2. You're going to win them 4 to 3. And they all count the same. So as we wrap up then, and, and if you're if you were the Astros GM, where do you start to look for ways to improve the club with the the confidence that Altuve returns to form and healthy and Springer as well? So where, what are some areas you think you, we, we need to start looking at to fix? Um, I, I mean, I think first and foremost, and this hasn't changed from the beginning of the year, they're going to need a number three starter. Um, Miley has been a very capable replacement, but I like him as a fourth starter in, in a playoff run a whole lot better than I like him as a third starter. Um, Verlander is Verlander. If you can get Cole on track and um, actually not giving up two run home runs every start, um, I think that third starter is pretty important. Um, the other thing I think you need to have um, – is a bat, whether you call it off the bench or DH or another outfielder, but one more bat um, that can kind of pick because even with all the great offensive players the Astros have, we've yet to see everybody hitting at the same time. Even during the two 10-game win streaks, not everybody's been hitting at the same time. Um, So I I think one more bat, um, you know, and I know that uh, Lunau and Hinch have different opinions than I do, obviously, and they rightfully get paid more to make this than <laughs> I do. Um, I'd love to see a, a, a true DH or somebody that there's not a drop off when they're playing DH. And just, I don't think Tyler White's that guy. Yeah, whether I agree. Whether that's Alvarez or whether that's from outside the system, I don't have any idea. The good news for the Astros is they're set up really well for the rest of the year. Their schedule, um, I think I was looking at it, is um, they will have the number two easiest schedule left for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um, the twins magically are at number one, which is, I, I wouldn't have guessed the twins would be here, but somehow they've had one of the easiest schedules up to this point and they have the easiest schedule going forward. Um, and that's, I guess the benefit of playing in the American league central with the really putrid tigers and white Sox and that group. Yeah. And, and an Indians team that is sinking like a stone. And, and that actually brings me up to a name you know, so there's been a lot of obviously unsubstantiated rumors at this point that that a Trevor Bauer trade could bring him to Houston. How would that work if, in fact, that happened? Um, I'd rather have 
carry, uh, I'd rather have an injured Kluber than I would <laughs> have Bauer. Um, I think it'd be interesting, but I think he's a guy that would have to go sit out in the bullpen every game because otherwise Alex Bregman is likely to kill him. <laughs> would kill him. Yeah. I mean, not just with looks. I think he would actually just go Cajun Mafia on him and just Bauer would disappear one day. It would disappear one day, the minute he blew one. Well, Andy, thanks a lot for being on the show. and We'll talk to you in a few weeks. All right. Sounds good. And I will see you next week in um, Seattle. Yes, sir. And now, the Big League Chew. And I on the Majors. We are back with the Big League Chew, and Scott McIntyre is back. And before we jump into something Scott's been dying to talk about, Scott, I think you need to thank some of the members of some of the guests of this show. Okay, I want to thank some of the guests and some of the members of this show. And I think the people you need to thank are the Round Rock Express, who essentially beat the Chicago Clubs last night. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but four members of the starting 10, because it's American League, were AAA players three weeks ago and still helped the Cardinals out as far as staying in the division race. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. One of the first things I read on the news this morning was Joe Madden uh, was talking about, you know, he's he's mystified by why why he can't win at Minute Maid Park. <laughs> he, he, he said he's not theorist but there, there's some mystery going on as to what's going on with the cubs and the curse of um and the curse of minute Maid, apparently yeah well let's hope it stays around for one more um one more game tonight um and it's weird because uh you know when that lineup came out i thought you know i told jessica you know this is a four-run lineup like you're gonna have to keep Martin on a short leash and almost I hate to use the phrase bullpen it, but the minute he gets in trouble, because I thought it was super important to win, you know the the, the injury news with Altuve and Correa. But um, this is not an Astros segment, and we're gonna talk about something. So we've been talking a lot about new rules, and there's one rule that you and I stand on the opposite side of, and I thought we would have it out now. Let's just do it now. I, I like that. You know, I'm still on the fence with this rule. I really am, but okay. I do want to play devil's advocate for the other side because I think there's a case to be made there. So, yeah. Do you want me to, to, yeah, to go bring ahead. this up? Bring it up. Okay, so let, let's let's end the tease. This is about the rule that's coming into effect next year where a reliever has to face three batters. Uh, I was At first, whenever I heard this, I was like you, and I said I don't like this rule. The more I thought about it, however – I think what what it does, number one, it's going to speed up games a little bit because fewer trips to the mound should be. Uh, number two, if a guy doesn't have it, a guy doesn't have it. But it's going to force a manager to make some decisions and make some strategy at the beginning of the game like they used to do, you know, left-right, left-right type of matchup. Uh, it will force a manager to make different types of strategies. I heard Mike Schilt, the manager of the Cardinals, talking about this, and I've, I've read a couple of other managers talking about it. It doesn't take the strategy out of the game. It replaces the strategy at a different location of the game. Okay. Um, continue explaining. Uh, okay, how, so, how does it affect that strategy? So what it, how it affects that strategy is in the past as a, as a manager, I can uh, right now I can throw a bunch of righties into the lineup. Uh, I can put them in whatever order I want. Okay, it's, it, it's going to work a certain way. 
So a starter is going to have to face a number of batters, whether they're on the left side of the plate or the right side of the plate. He's going, he knows going in, there's going to be batters that hit from either side. A reliever is going to be brought in. Typically what you see today, a lefty reliever is coming in to face a single left-handed batter, gets him out or not, and, and he's done. Also, they may pinch it for that lefty, depending on who it is. So today, just facing the one batter, he's done. And tomorrow, as a, as a manager, it may change the way I set my lineup to begin with at the outset of the game from, from everything I've read and heard. Because I, I know it may not be so important for me to pinch hit against this lefty, because if I bring a lefty reliever in, the lefty who's at the plate right now, uh, this guy's going to have to have to face the next two right-handed hitters behind him, or vice versa, depending on how I structure my lineup. So it takes the strategy out of uh, maybe a little bit out of the end game and puts it at the beginning of the game and how the manager wants to set it up. And, and really, I think it will – I think it will probably play a difference in the first half of next season more than anything in how these managers, which managers, are able to get out in front of this. Uh, it, it may make a difference of four or five games, but that's a long difference over the course of a season, you know? Yeah, I mean, I still, I'm still not about it. I, I still like, you know, I, I think um, now that we're an American League team, and that's what I watch, you know, the strategy in the AL is obviously less important to a man in the NL, and of course, the Universal DH is coming, so that's gonna. It just seems to me that you've taken, you really could just put a lineup card in, and then take a nap for three hours. I, I think. I don't want to see the left-handed specialist go away. I I like the I I don't know. I like that end of the game in-game strategy because whether or not it makes sound tactical baseball response, it adds for a lot more emotional fan drama, and that drama is going to be heightened at the end of the game. And I think when we're talking about keeping a game exciting, moving something that's dramatic to the beginning of the game where we have three hours to get used to it versus. You know, you like what's more dramatic than bringing in the left-handed specialist, and then he walks the guy. No, definitely. Uh, that, I mean, that becomes high drama really quickly. But then, you, you know, the next thing they're, they're going to the pen. I, I do think that this rule does tie into the DH rule. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think these two things will come along together very shortly um, after this. I think we'll see the DH. I think this also changed the way changes the way that teams set up their rosters. Because now I may not need to carry 13 pitchers, right? Uh, I, I know a guy's going to have to go a certain length of time. I think it will also make a shift, albeit a small one, but I think it will make a shift into us seeing starters go longer into games. Man, this year, from what I, if a starter goes six innings, it is amazing right now. And, and I don't like that about baseball at all. I want to see the starting pitcher you know, do a little bit of workhorse work. I don't want the guy to hit 75 pitches and let's take him out. Well, first of all, so, I don't think that they're taking a lot of people out at 75 pitches. It seems like they're taking them out right at 100, and I think there's a statistical reason for that, and I'm all about it. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily care about going back to the days of Bob Gibson, and I, I honestly think this rule won't hit the MLB. Like, there is no for sure that this thing's going to happen. They're still testing it in the Atlantic League. And in fact, I don't even know that that's actually started in the Atlantic League yet versus I think it starts June 1st. What, what I, and, but I don't think it hits the major league because of the, I don't think the labor union's going to let it happen. And I think with a contentious CBA argument coming, they're not going to risk losing left handed specialist jobs 
for for this purpose. I, I really that's why I, it's almost like a moot argument to have because I don't think it'll actually hit the MLB. Well, um, you know, time will tell. I, I disagree with you. I, I do think it's coming. Um, I, I think it opens up position player rosters, uh, roster spots, and given the fact of what they're going to do with the forty man roster, also, and get rid of it. I, I think this is this becomes the the natural. Uh, the, the natural fix. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see. This is, you know, I'm, I'm basing a lot of what I'm thinking right now off of hearing guys in the game and, and hearing their feedback and, and preparing for this change to come. Um, so, but we'll see, right? Time will tell. So That's for um, sure. one of the thing is we just had, we just had Memorial Day and Memorial Day is now generally regarded, um, although maybe not as much in the wild card era, but generally regarded as now it's okay to look at the standings and you know the standings are up and and teams like the Twins and the Astros honestly and and the Dodgers have really healthy division leads of at least 7 games and um you know you got to feel bad for Oakland they went like 10 and 1 in their last 11 and gained a game and a half like <laughs> that's baseball for yeah. you but what of our three division champs and I'm talk I mean sorry division leaders I'm talking about the Yankees I'm talking about the Phillies and I'm talking about the Cubs which of these division leads do you feel like is the most tenuous um or and which of those three do you think will end up still winning their division I think the Yankees have the best chance of those three to still win their division because they've overcome so many injuries to, to gain the lead that they have. And the lead they have right now is over a Tampa Bay team that that's good, but I'm, I still think they may be playing above their head. Uh, the Cubs and the Phillies are not going to have a lot of room behind them. The, the Phillies have two, three teams right behind them that, that could still win the division. And the Cubs, um, it, you know, the Brewer, the Brewers are right behind them. The Cardinals are definitely underperforming. There are probably, if you're a Cardinals fan like me and you're not, pressing the panic button just a little, or at least thinking about pressing it, uh, then I really have to question your sanity because they're playing way under the talent level on the field. And and the pirates aren't that far away. And I don't think the pirates have played baseball as well as they can. Um, but let's look at that division too. The, the reds are three games under 500. Like any, any team is a good week and a half away from being in first place. And it looks like the Cubs are, are, Really, in a downward slide, I think. I, I, I've never been. I've not been a believer in the in the Cubs all year. Like I didn't even pick them to make the playoffs. Period. So, in the name of my predictions being right, I think they fall flat on their face. Well, I, I agree with. You. I think that Joe Madden is an amazing manager. I have to give credit where it's due. Um, you know, going back to last night's game that we were talking about before with the Astros, uh, the problems of John Lester over his last three starts continue to arise. There's Father time catches up with us all at some point, and it may be catching up with Mr. Lester. So the the Cubs uh, rotation scares me a little bit if I'm a Cubs fan, which I'm not. But if I was, I would be concerned. Uh, the Brewers, I mean, Craig Council, there's a lot of good managers in that division. The Brewers are performing well. They've got a ton of offense. If they can keep their pitching staff together, there's something else. But the Cardinals have way too much talent, and they lined up this year to be way too important to be performing this way. This is the type of year that a GM loses his job. Um, as as good or bad as that sounds, um, for the Cardinals, if the Cardinals fail to make the playoffs again this year, I I would expect to see uh, a big overhaul in the front office. Well, I I do, I do think they flip a switch. I think that they are a team that seems to be uh, at least for the last few years really good with their backs against the wall. And I think you're right. I think they made too many personnel upgrades. Where I'm I'm not I, I would not 
be worried about a four-game lead in that particular division, uh, a four-game deficit. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they'll be fine. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of teams in that division. You know, at least you know we talked about it before the season started. These teams are coming out with no gloves on, just swinging and hitting and landing punches on each other every night. These are two tough, tough baseball divisions. Yeah, and I think well, and I think what it probably does mean is it probably lends them to not maybe advancing very far in October because you, you don't get the idea. I mean, and honestly, you could you could look at the Astros last year for as talented as that team was. Um, with Oakland staying so close for so long, it meant guys like Correa and, and Altuve didn't get to rest those injuries that definitely showed up in the ALCS. And you got to wonder if whoever comes out of the East and the Central, if they've got to really do battle for 162 or 163 games, how are they going to hold up? Well, then let me ask you this as an Astros fan. So do you think some of the injuries that, that you had late in the year last year that nagged and that continued late into the postseason now – you're seeing other injuries pop up as an Astros fan now. As you, to your point, you had Triple A team up last night. So, do you think any of that played together? So, yes and no. I think the Altuve injury 100% had to do with the knee. He said as much in a in, in an because he, he went to the game anyway. And and I don't know if you've they've got this new tradition where they're starting pulling out bobbleheads of who's currently batting on the dugout and flipping it. It's, they started doing it with Gurriel uh, two days ago. He went three for four. So you saw him. <laughs> with his Bregman bobblehead. Well, he did an interview afterward and said it really had everything to do with him still not used to how having a foreign object holding his knee together feels. And so they're going to basically take it back to there's no more structural damage. It was just sort of an overcompensation for something that's different. And I think that makes sense. I think you could argue that um, the spring or hamstring injury came from an, an adjustment to his back being tightened. Like we all know that sure. – and, and honestly too, he went balls to the wall on that play and twisted himself into a pretzel. The Correa injury, which he somehow hurt his ribs, that sounds like maybe he had a little uh, extra bedroom activity going on. But, but I, So I think uh, <laughs> there was something dubious by that injury. But no, I, I do feel like um, a little bit of both. And But I also feel like with the Correa injury and even to a, to a degree actually – the Springer injury, if this were September and it were a tight pennant race, I think they'd be playing. I think the Astros have gotten to the point where if you sneeze weird, we're going to pull you right now, knowing the lead in the division and knowing where the team is trying to get to. I think that's totally smart. And then you also get some young guys coming up from AAA. You get some experience well, at the big league level. Experience smart and stuff they, to do. And then they become trade bait later on, you know, because now Derek Fisher probably doesn't have a future on the Astros team, but. You know he's he's batting three hundred since being called back up. He's got plus speed, might look good in somebody else's uniform. And you know one of the things too that that was sort of cool is that when they asked Bregman about it last night about having these AAA players, and he was like, "Look, these guys all start on twenty eight other teams. They just don't start on this one." And I think that's uh, was a good point. I think it's a great point, and you know it, it helps that you have like every Astros player signed through twenty forty two or whatever it is. I mean. <laughs> It's insane. Uh, so, yeah, the Astros are around for a long time. Yeah. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, we, we, we haven't talked about the Red Sox. They were really bad. They've gotten better. They're kind of plateauing. I think they'll make another resurgence uh, to give the Yankees a run. But, man, the Yankees really look good. I, that pain, I mean, that honestly, that hurt my lower back when I said that. Well, uh, But they do. They look great. Here's the they, thing on that. And, and I don't know if you saw a graphic I posted yesterday. But the Yankees look really, really great. 
but they are 26 and 9 versus teams under 500 and they are 8 and 8 against teams versus over 500 which tells me they've got a long road to hoe go to and they and that's smart and that's good like if you're injured it's lucky to 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 make your hay against the baltimores of the world until you're at full strength Regarding the Red Sox, I feel like ESPN, every 10 days, they post this the, the Red Sox are back, and then they go play a team that's good and lose three or four. So I I get them wanting to push the Red Sox narrative because that does, you know, like, we're, like I, I'm an NFL fan. Cowboys being good is good for the NFL. The Yankees and Red Sox being good is good for baseball. But, we'll, you know, we'll see. No, absolutely agree, man. I, I absolutely agree. Well, um, That'll I think that'll about wrap it up then. And I know that we're like dude, we're like uh like six weeks away from our big Gateway Grizzly St. Louis Cardinals tour. You know, I'm looking forward to it so much. Uh I, I really am. I'm I'm looking forward to getting out and uh catching a couple of games with you. Uh having Jess up here with us too, man. I think it's gonna be a I think it's gonna be a really good time. And uh and looking forward to it. We've got a whirlwind week ahead of us that week and it's going to be cool as can be it's going to be a blast man but we'll talk to you next week all right buddy take it easy you too on deck the let's get to interview of the week brought to you by fine line sportswear so as we begin our deep dive into the collegiate woodbat leagues we're going to start with the chatham anglers of the cape cod league we're going to talk to the famous Savannah Bananas. So we'll start out with the president of the Chatham Anglers and a former Longhorn, Steve West. So Steve, thanks so much for joining. Let's get to. All right. Great. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in baseball and ended up being the president of the Chatham Anglers. Well, I was a, I was a wannabe uh, Major League Baseball player, and I played uh, high school ball in Dallas and uh, played a year of college ball, and I realized that uh, I wasn't going to be the next, uh, uh, at that time, you know, Willie Mays or whatever. So um, I went on to, to a different career. Um, always always interested in baseball i did a little bit of coaching uh as an adult but uh only very very shortly uh, went off and had a professional career elsewhere as a kid growing up my my grandparents uh lived on cape cod in chatham and the uh uh he was he was actually the president of the chatham anglers they weren't the chatham anglers then uh, back in the mid '60s, late '60s. So uh, at that time, I, I actually uh, had some interaction with uh, the Cape Cod Baseball League. So part of my retirement plan was to head back to Chatham and to get get involved with the athletic organization again. And uh, it all came into fruition. Retired in 2011 and uh, uh, became immediately involved in the organization and have uh, been president for the last. I think six or seven years now. So, so what is your mission? What is so? What is the mission of the Chatham Anglers, particularly how it relates to the community of Chatham? The mission of the Chatham Athletic Association, which is the parent organization of the Chatham Anglers baseball team, is is really twofold. One is, and the major piece of it is running the Chatham Anglers baseball team in the Cape Cod League. Um, but our, our other mission is to uh, is to give back to the youth uh, in the community of Chatham, and we try to do that in a number of different ways uh, through scholarships, through uh, first pitches, through uh, raffle prizes, through a lot of different things. Uh, we even 
donate uh, some of our equip our merchandise and our uh, uh, leftover uh, food items at the end of the season to the to the food pantry for the local youth in town there. So um, that's the that's the unseen part of the organization, and obviously the the uh, the visual part of the organization to to, to 99% of the people is the is the uh, is the Chatham Anglers baseball team, which uh, as you know have, have been fairly famous and popular over the years. So. Yeah, I know I'm a big Jeff Bagwell fan, and I know he played there. And, and so the Cape Cod League seems to be the stopping place for a lot of really good big leaguers. Yes, yes. Uh, we've we've had uh, literally uh, over 150 uh, former major league players, I guess. Uh, if you go way, way, way back, um, Charlie Huff, who's a University of Texas uh, a product, or a Texas product anyway, actually played for us. Uh, Back in the back in the '60s, uh, Thurman Munson played for us in the '60s as well. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, Bagwell, and uh, you know, more more recently, uh, uh, Albert Bell played for us back in the '80s. Uh, Albert Bell and, and Bagwell were actually on the same team together. You know, you're in a unique position because you can't really sell your team on roster recognition. So, how do you work to get people out to see the Chatham Anglers? That's uh, you're exactly right. I mean, we we turn over our team pretty much every year. We bring back um, most of our players are finishing their sophomore years uh, because after their junior years they're drafted. So, uh, and I told you that freshmen generally struggle. So the team will be composed of probably maybe a half of the half the players will be sophomores, going to be juniors the following year. Um, 25% of it or even less will be freshmen going to be sophomores. And then we do get probably 10 to 25% that, that are juniors going to be seniors that either didn't get drafted or decided not to, to go pro and wanted to finish their college education or for whatever reason came back for their senior year of school. So um, that's, 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 but, but toward that end, we seldom have players come back for a second year and, and almost never for a third year. So, uh, so each year, um, the, the fans that are coming to watch, they're not coming to watch specific players generally. Um, they, they're, they're generally coming for the experience and, 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 and once you get up there, you'll, you'll kind of see it. I think, um, it's, it's, it's part of the Chatham experience in the summertime. I mean, people come to Chatham for the beaches. They come to Chatham for the band concerts. They come to Chatham for the stores and restaurants, and they come to Chatham for the baseball. And it's just kind of all part of the package. And Chatham does a great job itself of just marketing Chatham. So I'm a movie guy, and one of my big favorite baseball movies that Rotten Tomatoes seems to hate is Summer Catch. Uh, I actually think the movie's really, really good. I think it's cute. I think that it does a really good job of selling the baseball, and it seems like nothing more than a love note to the Cape Cod League. How do the people of Chatham feel about the film? <laughs> well, uh, i got to tread a little bit lightly here. I mean, we are a G-rated audience, and the, the, the opening scene of the movie was, was a little bit uh, risque. It's, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty R-rated, so um, so you know that wasn't, wasn't really well received, let's say. Um, but you know, kind of going back to um, the, the the famous people, so to speak, that that frequent our ballpark. I mean, the guy who directed it is is a fan. So you know, he he wanted to do something for the 
for the for the team and that was kind of what he put together and and did so uh obviously he had a lot of connections with Fred, Freddie Prince and Jessica Beale um so you know it was a star-studded cast you know uh, you know obviously all publicity is good publicity right you know the the the, the movie crew was uh, was kind enough to give us their the, the scoreboard from that uh, from that film so uh, the scoreboard that we're actually replacing this year has been in place since 2002, I guess, uh, uh, and it's from that movie. Um, I guess, you know, the movie, it's not really a, I mean, it's not a baseball movie. It's more of a, like you said, a love story, a feel-good movie, uh, um, you know, one of the uh, touchy-feely, I'll call it, movie. Um, so in, in that respect, it, it's, it's, I didn't, I didn't. I, I would give it more than six uh, to make yeah. I, I would definitely say it was better than that. Was it? Was it one of my favorite movies of all times, or even my favorite sports movies? No, no. Uh, I'm a Field of Dreams guy. That's my favorite movie. Yeah, Field of Dreams is iconic and awesome. Uh, that seems like a pretty good place to leave it. Steve, thanks so much for being on Let's Get Two, and good luck this season. All right, glad to be a part of it. Thank you very much. And now to talk a little bit more about the Chatham Anglers, we turn to General Manager. Mike Galen. Mike, thanks so much for joining. Let's get to. Terrific. Well, you're welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, it's always good to talk about the Chatham Anglers and the Cape Cod Baseball League with folks that aren't necessarily here on the Cape. So if you could explain to the audience what the mission of a collegiate summer league is, particularly from the competitive baseball side of things. The, a collegiate summer league like the Cape League and, and 11 others around the country are dedicated to helping players uh, further their their career, their aspirations in baseball. Uh, We deal with only college players, uh, NCAA and and junior college players from the U.S. That's all. Those are the only players permitted right now in our league. Uh, Though we're talking about bringing in some Canadian college players as well. Um, The idea is to give the players a taste of playing ball a little bit more like they might find in the professional on the professional level we play we'll play five six sometimes seven games in a week and that the seven games a week would be due to uh foul weather you know postponing earlier games and something they never do in college so it's in that sense it's more like the pros playing almost every night or almost every day and again unlike college college is a much more structured environment you know, there are team managers, team uh, dormitories, team schedules, et cetera. Here, we find housing for every player, but it's the player's responsibility to get from their housing to the field for practice, for games, to the bus for away games. They have to remember which uniform to wear. We don't have a locker room in Chatham, for example, so they've got to remember is it home or away, which combination. We have a potential of oh, about four combinations of uniform top and uniform pants to wear whether it's home or away. They have to remember what's been assigned for that day and come properly dressed, properly equipped. So again, a little bit more like playing on the pro level. They've got to do these things for themselves. We provide a game meal after every game, but other than that, they're on their own to find food, uh, et cetera. Uh, we provide the potential for jobs. We We can let them work in the clinic. We have a clinic for uh, children from six to 14 or doing field work. Uh, once upon a time in the Cape, the players used to get real jobs, so to speak. They would work 
for the DPW. They would work in town at restaurants, but it was a different time then. Players yeah. today, we have these jobs that go till you know during the day, and most of the time, other than that, they're out working out in a gym or practicing. Uh, it's a different athlete. We give them this taste of more real life. And the scouts, the major league scouts we talked to said, in many ways, the, the seven, eight, nine weeks they spend on the Cape, the players are much more realistic in what they see from the players. On top of that, they're using wooden bats, not aluminum, and they're seeing more frontline players. Talk about, you know, we like to say that on the Cape, it's an all-star game every night of college players. And it is. We, we are able to cherry pick amongst the top 300 players, I'm talking for the league-wide, that there are in the country. It's the premier, we think it's the premier college league, but scouts tell us it is, and we hear that from the college coaches. So we get the creme de la creme of the college players every year. So the, the talent level is higher. So again, scouts like watching it, you know, it, it, it's circular. The scouts like watching it because the talent's better. The talent likes coming here because the scouts are here. You know, as an independent club, but a pretty high-profile club and a high-profile league, how do you go about finding players in the first place? Uh, it's a two-way street. And by that, I mean, we have called, okay, the, the primary way of players coming to the Cape is a recruitment basis. There's no draft, and it comes down to relationships between the managers here with college coaches, plus the college coaches that want to send their players here. So you have both groups, you know, it's, it's symbiotic in that it's good for both groups. So we have teams that if you if you look at the rosters of the 10 teams in the Cape League over the period of, oh, let's say, 10 years, you'll see a pattern to some extent of certain schools providing players for certain teams. And that what you're looking at is primarily a relationship between that team's manager and those college coaches. So the better the relationship, the better players they'll get for their team. Uh, but then we have schools like North Carolina that send a lot of kids here. Yeah. And UCLA will send a lot of kids here in USC. Uh, so there's a lot of competition amongst the Cape teams with the schools to get the better players. Um, so that's, that's how we do it. It's recruiting. It's, it's to some extent a year round process. Uh, we, you know, the, the, like I said before, the, the season is from early June to early August, but you're already working on your next year's players long before the season starts. And while the season is going on, it's that competitive on both levels. And you have you have colleges, you have kids going to certain schools, colleges, with the idea that they can go to the Cape League. You have college coaches in the recruiting say, hey, we've got connections on the Cape. You come here, we'll help you get a spot on the Cape team. So you're dealing with a lot of really young men, some of whom haven't been, you know, away from mom or away from a structured environment. How? What's the biggest challenge in helping them out? What's the biggest challenge in with? What is the biggest challenge for these players? The players pay for their housing. In Chatham, we charge them $75 a week, and they're put in housing in local homes. Uh, people that want to house players for a variety of reasons. A lot of people that have children like having players. They like the role model. Uh, the kids like having the players there. So they'll pay the 75 to the team. The team then pays the, the host family $75 a piece. All we ask of the host family to provide for the players is Wi-Fi, and access to a washer-dryer. Food is not included, though a lot of the families feed the kids. Sure. Uh, it's, not, it's not included. It's, we're told not to. Vehicles aren't included. We're, you know, we tell them that's it. Room, 
you know, with a bed, Wi-Fi, access to a wash dryer. That's the only insistent things we insist upon. But for both groups, it becomes very positive. Usually, uh, the, the the adults, the the families that are involved, like having these these players in there. The players get to be part of the family to some extent after 90 days. I and mean, there are all kinds of stories on the Cape of players being invited to weddings down the road of families and family members being invited to player weddings and players keeping in contact with their host families on into their lives. And there's one or two stories of a, of a player marrying a host family daughter. Uh, Chris Sale talks about his host family when he was here and he didn't play in Chatham. He played for a YD, but there t- he talks about it a lot. And some of the other major league players will talk about their host families uh, going forward. Mike, thanks so much for the info, and thanks for agreeing to be on Let's Get To. Thank you, James. So we turn our attention now to the Savannah Bananas. Now, those of you who are not familiar with the Savannah Bananas need to acquaint yourself because they are one of the best brands in baseball. They are bringing the fun to baseball. They take the whole sideshow part of it to a whole other level with live bands and y'all they played some games in kilts so we're excited to welcome a member of the savannah bananas front office lizzie mackerty she's in charge of community outreach and is the merchandise director for the bananas so lizzie thank you so much for joining let's get to thank you for having me so lizzie you are part of what i gotta think is one of the most interesting organizations in baseball the savannah bananas Yes. Just curious, how did you get started? How did you start from being into baseball to ending up being part of the front office of a baseball team? Yeah, so fun fact, actually, I have no background in baseball whatsoever. Um, I got started here. Actually, my husband, Danny, started with the team um, back in November of 2015, so back when it was Savannah Baseball. And I was working nights at the time, and um, once the name got revealed as the Savannah Bananas, as you can imagine, the merchandise was just flying off the shelves, or as I should say, the boxes, because that's all we had at the time. And, uh, you know, Jesse and Emily were like, this is crazy. We have so many orders. We need a little bit of help. So Danny had asked me if I could come in during the day before work and help them just put the orders together. So Myself and our president, Jared Orton's wife, Kelsey, um, we are just filling up packages and going by this Excel sheet that they had put together with addresses on. And we were going to the post office like three and four times a day, just sending out these packages. And it was it was an experience, to say the least. And yeah, it's kind of just gone from there. Uh, It's now my full time job. I am the director of merchandise. And luckily, I've learned a thing or two and don't have to go to the post office two and three times a day. And um, we've got these cool yellow boxes. And yeah, it's it's just been an experience and a learning experience for sure. But it's been it's been a wild ride and it's been a lot of fun. So like I was saying, you guys are one of the most um, recognizable collegiate summer leagues. And, you know, you guys only play for like two months, but such a recognizable brand Talk a little bit about about just like about the organization and 
kind of the focus that the organization has because they always say on their website it says fun first, you know, that kind of thing. What what kind of a vibe are the Savannah Bananas trying to build? Yeah, so Jesse is always preaching, you know, if it's normal, do the exact opposite. Um, and fans first, that's what our company is, is called. It's fans first entertainment. So basically it's, it's twofold of giving the fans the best experience at our games, um, as well as doing the crazy, fun, different um, entertainment. So um, we are all about, um, you know, doing what our customers kind of, how am I supposed to say this? Um, it's it's a show. I mean, it's it's entertaining. It's it's a circus with some baseball thrown in there. So, um, as well as, as for our staff members and our game day staff members, we we really um, just talk about how our fans are the number one fans in the ballpark. You know, we we want them to have the best experience possible. Um, when we walk through our ballpark, doesn't matter how busy we are, we, we make sure we pick up trash and make sure the stations are clean. And if somebody has a question, where where's the restroom? We don't just point to them over it's to your left. We walk them to the restroom. You know, it's just those little things that can make an experience um, more than just going to a baseball game. So that's what we really try and strive for um, from the big picture of the show down to um, the the smallest little details. Well, again, I think I know that you're the director of merchandise, but I think the whole way you guys package that team from, you know, so talking a little bit about the merchandise, um, I love the fact that it's so varied. It all looks really, really cool. And like you were saying, it it basically ships in a yellow, almost like a produce box. Yeah. (laughs) So talk a little bit about like why that experience, because I mean, I'll be honest, I actually saved my box and it's in my office. Did you? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, when we first started, um, it was kind of just what's the the easiest, the the quickest way to get these T-shirts out to people. And now that we've kind of um, mastered that task, if you will, we we've thought more about how can we make this really special? So it's not just, oh, you get um, your T-shirt in the mail, you know, it's um, so. We tried to come come up with creative ways. So we've got the yellow box, um, and we have a custom stamp on it with our bananas logo that says "delivered fresh." And um, when you open the box, it's got some nice yellow tissue paper, um, my business card. We also include a, a decal sticker and koozie for you. It's just some little um, little gifts from us, and of course your T-shirt. And you know every order that we send out. Um, I, I either call them personally or, you know, if it's during the summer and we need some help, you'll get a call from an intern just personally saying thank you for your order. So we just, like, again, just small experiences just such as just ordering a T-shirt online. We want to make sure it's a special one. Well, first of all, it isn't just your business card. I mean, it's a baseball card. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, all of us have baseball cards as our business cards, you know, fun picture and uh some stats, if you will, on the back. So, yeah. <laughs> so I want to, I've got some, some of the questions about some of the personnel that are part of the Savannah Bananas that I think make this, but I really want to talk about Daisy, the back. Okay. 
speaking of, she's here today. <laughs> Is she here today? Can we can we get her on the show? Uh, tell us a little bit about Bait, because I'm you know so a little bit about me. I'm a dog. I'm a dog person. Our festival is the Austin Revolution Film Festival. We call it ARF. So it, dogs are all up in our branding. So tell us a little bit about Daisy and how she ended up being the bat dog of the Savannah Bananas. Yeah. Oh my goodness, it's hard to believe that it was like three years ago now, um, right around my birthday, I remember um, I was here in the office. Well, actually, I had just left, and I get this picture from my husband of a puppy, and it's a teeny, tiny, precious little puppy, and having two dogs myself, I wish we could bring her home, but the two other dogs that we have probably wouldn't like that, but um, yeah, one of our um, sales ticket guys was going out for a meeting and he was in a rush and just walked back in the office and handed off this puppy he had found under his car. So, and, um, they kept her in the office here for a few days, made sure that she wasn't somebody's that she was lost and no one had claimed her after being at the humane society for a few days. And Jared, our president and his wife, Kelsey adopted her and, She's been at many games, and she frequents the office regularly. Like I said, she's here today. So she is she is one famous Savannah Banana Dog. <laughs> she is on Instagram, everybody, and don't worry. I will definitely link her account in the description of this episode. So the Savannah Bananas, again, um, for some background for everybody else, later on in the season, we're going to speak to some folks from the Brazos Valley Bombers. And I was talking to her, and, and she was just – she just said, you've got to talk to the bananas because they're the ones doing this marketing thing the best. And there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens at the ballpark. You guys have played in kilts. You have a, you have like a brand, like a college band type thing. What are some of the favorite parts of that bananas atmosphere that you like that you think fans will dig? Oh my goodness. Where to start? Oh, uh, well, we have, um, many different crazy promotions. I mean, and of course, Jesse being super creative and crazy, we come up with a lot of different ones that we cycle throughout different games. Um, we have dancing in the dark where you're blindfolded and you think you're competing with other people. Um, where, and then you just take off your blindfold and you've actually been dancing like a crazy idiot by yourself. <laughs> Um, we have the Banana Nanas, which are personally one of my favorites. Um, it's a senior citizen dance group. So they are uh, a group of older ladies who are, you know, dressed in our banana jerseys. And they get out there in between the innings and they do a line dance. And they are talented, let me tell you. Um, they do some moves that I myself probably can't even do. <laughs> but they're always fun. Um we have, you know, we have, like, characters that our fans recognize when they come to the games. We have, when we play the Make and Bacon, we have someone who dresses up as a pig uh, for Save the Pigs, Down with Bacon. Um, we have, um, when the umpires meet in the beginning of the game, we play I Love You by Barney. And Barney comes out, you know, it's just like totally ridiculous and has nothing to do with baseball, of course, um, but things like that. And then, of course, lastly, our dancing first base coach, Darius, um, he has had a lot of attention 
Uh, he's an amazing dancer, and during the game, actually, he will just bust down into these amazing dance moves and gets the crowd really going. So it's just fun, different, crazy characters like that that our, our fans look forward to seeing. I have to imagine that's um, beyond, obviously, being a lot of fun. It, I, I have to imagine that's a good strategy since you guys really don't know from any given year who the players will even be. So you can't really market the players. You have to market the experience. Right. And um, we do, um, once we get closer to the season, of course, once we have those guys who are returning, um, we'll market that. And then, of course, um, state schools, you know, fans get excited when we get some um, Georgia Southern or University of Georgia players. So we'll, we'll market that as well. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, a lot of people are coming because of the show. So, and I, and like I said, with some baseball in there. So, <laughs> so talk to me about the kilts. Did you guys sell any kilts after y'all played in kilts? You know, we thought about it, um, but we want to make this uh, a tradition. We're we're down to do another St. Patrick's Day in July game, so we're bringing. We want to bring the kilts back. <laughs> Speaking of St. Patrick's Day, I did get my sweet St. Patrick's Day shirt in the mail, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, they turned out great. They really did. So, what are some of the most popular items that you guys sell, either online or at the game? Like, what are people buying? Because I have the comfort colors, the St. Patrick's Day, and it's. Probably my favorite lid that I got, my favorite hat. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would probably have to say, you know, our primary logo T-shirts are still kicking it, man. I mean, I was surprised that, you know, not everybody has those yet. But it's our, our staple logo um, with Savannah bananas with that mean mug and batting banana on it. Uh, we have that shirt and a few different options. I would say that that's probably our most popular um, overall um, then of course the jerseys do really well. Um, also I've noticed during the season, it really depends on what our guys are wearing. And then people tend to buy that certain Jersey, what we're wearing on the field, people want to buy. So, um, those are pretty popular as well. And lastly, I would have to say, surprisingly enough, we have banana underwear and that sells pretty well if you can imagine especially around christmas time people are looking for that perfect gag gift or white elephant gift and let me tell you a nice pair of fruit of the loom tidy whities with our logo on there um <laughs> people are buying them so yeah <laughs> lizzie this is a family show it's hilarious i love that yeah so it's been it's been fun. So when you guys come up, I mean, who's coming up with what you put your logo on? Like, is it a team effort or y'all just trying to outdo each other? I got to imagine it's just a, a team meeting of crazy people. Yeah, yeah. So it is a team effort. Um, I meet with um, Jesse and Emily and Jared once a month for a merchandise meeting. And um, the creative the creativeness, I will have to say, a lot comes from Jesse. The craziness, the the attention getter items are are definitely Jesse. Um, but you know, we we've really listened to our fans what they what they want. Um, we will come up with certain items like a long sleeve shirt or a tank top or things like that. 
put a few logos on them. And we've actually put that on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our fans vote for their favorite. So um, a lot of our designs have come up from, you know, just rapport from our fans. Well, and how is the fan response? Because you guys have like some kind of crazy run of sellouts, particularly for a collegiate Woodbat team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we first off sell our membership packages, which are our full season membership, our 10-game membership, and our five-game membership. Um, and those go on sale in the fall, and those sell out pretty quickly. We actually were sold out of those by February, which was a month, whole month earlier than last year. Um, so, you know, and that's a lot of our recurring fan base. So, uh, so many people are just happy with the game, happy with the show, happy with the service, and they want to keep coming back. So that's a lot of, um, our, our fan base there. And then our single game tickets go on sale in the spring and that's where, you know, if they didn't get the memberships or if they're still, um, if they're new to Savannah or, you know, coming in from out of town, um, they will, they will get single game ticket. Lizzie, thank you so much for joining. Let's get to. Thank you, James. And again, thanks Lizzie for joining us and, and really just take a second, go look at the Savannah bananas. They are out front, both on the marketing side of things, they do a lot of video content, and they have just created a lot of personality from their baseball team that really helps them thrive. And now, on to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. So unfortunately, we're going to close this thing out, or at least start the close out on a negative note. And it's sort of fitting that we were talking about collegiate woodbat leagues and, and the development of young men into baseball players and the responsibility that comes with that at all level of their growth, that we're going to talk about Art Bryles. And I want to say, first of all, to the Mount Vernon ISD, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourselves for hiring this man and bring him into your school community. Now, if people are going to listen. What does this guy care? He's a small baseball podcast and, and, and it's football. Yeah, it's football, but it's also disgusting and gross and everything that I think is wrong with parts of our culture. Now, for those of you who are listening around the country, I don't know how big the story got, but we're talking about, about a story that is almost as severe as the Penn state cover up. Baylor under the guidance of art, of art Bryles, allowed rapists onto campus. Players that were dismissed or left other teams in which Bryles was aware that there were charges and accusations and he took them on anyway. He encouraged transfers to his football team that were accused of rape. He shamed and silenced victims. He assisted in the obstruction of the investigation either himself or having his underlings do it. And the entire city of Waco was complicit from the Waco Police Department to the Waco news outlets, which did nothing to report it until it broke from newspapers in like Houston and Austin. And these are things you can't debate. Like these are things that 
every single news outlet and the report that came out, which they did a really good job of trying to bury, acknowledges. He created a culture of rape that was accepted in Baylor. And it's something that no one denies except for Baylor fans. Now, here's the thing. I'm a father and I'm a husband. I'm a father of a daughter. And, I'm, and I have been a teacher of some wonderful young women in my time at St. Michael's and at St. Austin's before that. And I know it's like people are saying, well, the, you should just care because you're a human, not because you're a father and a daughter. And look, I do care because I'm a human. But there are a lot of things that go wrong in the world. One of the reasons why this does affect me so much for right or for wrong is the fact that when I hear about these stories, I can't help but see the faces of my own child or the faces of my students. It's just I, – I can't help that. But as a human being, this is so – Wrong. And he should not be allowed in a situation where he is around students. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and I know in Texas we don't, because this it's the it's the state of Friday Night Lights and the Dallas Cowboys and the University of Texas Longhorns and the fight in Texas Aggies and, and I get it. And I am sure that it will at least it appears that the people of Baylor and the people of Waco, who spent so much time in that maroon and that burnt orange shadow, were willing to essentially sell their souls to be good at football for a time. But the thing that we have to remember is that coaches are teachers. They are faculty. They are there to guide students. And one of the, one of the implicit promises that I as a teacher understand and that all teachers need to get is that when a parent sends us their child, the most precious thing in their lives. It is implicit that we create a safe space for them. And the only people that Art Bryles created a safe space for were rapists. Protecting students was supposed to be his number one job, and he broke that vow. He broke that promise. And he broke it at a Christian school where... People who follow that faith should have felt like they were extra safe. He has faced no repercussions for his actions. They reluctantly fired him. I believe he's still got a payout. I don't know. And now he's back. And for those of you who think when well, he made one mistake, there's a lot of, I'll admit, unsubstantiated accusations about Art Bryles from his days coaching high school in Texas. There was a story about how the former head coach at the University of Texas before Mac Brown refused to even recruit Art Bryles' high school because of the dubious ways in which the students were supposedly given performance-enhancing drugs. And things like rape and sexual assault weren't discouraged. So now he's back at Mount Vernon, and they are all excited. A 7 to nothing vote of the school board approved him being hired. And they claim they did all the due diligence in the world. They didn't talk to Baylor. They didn't talk to victims. But they did all the due diligence in the world because they want to win at football. I love Texas. I love my culture so much. I love that in a small town in the middle of nowhere, there will be 12,000 people at a football game. I love that. But 
I love the women of this state more. And they need to be protected and they need to be safe. And shame on Mount Vernon. And shame on anybody that, and, and all these Baylor fans I know that walk around that, that thinking that this story was some creation of the University of Texas because they were mad that Baylor was good at football. I don't know if, I don't know how, if you have a daughter, you can look her in the eye. And, and for as much as we all need to like acknowledge the fact that we need to care because we're humans, I do hope that every single man who has a daughter and sends her off to college hoping she'll be safe. I hope that they're joining me in hoping that Mount Vernon reverses this decision, which they will not do because they got to win football games. This is not a football show. Uh, We are real excited to talk about our players of the week and our teams of the week. So we're actually going to stay in the state of Texas. And we're going to start out with Corpus Christi Hooks, Abraham Toro. So in May, he played 22 games. He hit 410 with five bombs, 20 RBIs, 20 walks, and a 1.202 OPS. Just his last nine, nine games alone, he went five. He hit 559 with three homers and 11 RBIs. He leads the Texas League in average RBIs, OPS, and in total bases. We talked about all the good things that the Round Rock Express were doing off the field. On it, they could play a little baseball too. Congrats to Cy Sneed. And I guess when your name is Cy, you better be a good pitcher. Well, he almost, he took a perfect game into the eighth inning, ended up facing 25 batters, retiring 24 of them on just 88 pitches. I hear that's pretty good. So we have another player of the week too. Member of the Let's Get To team, Mr. Nathan Bybee. You've already heard him on the show a few times. He's a co-owner of the podcast. Took second at the Gaff Bar. In the belt sander races. Congratulations, Nathan. We hope we'll see you up in the show pretty soon. We want to give a big shout out to the Quad Cities River Bandits. They are first place in their division despite the fact that the Mississippi flooding in Davenport, Iowa has prevented them from only playing like five or six home games. They played something like 30 games on the road, but still have a commanding lead in their division and continue to play winning baseball. So shout out to that team. Shout out to their GM, Jacqueline Holm, for keeping that all together. What an impressive, impressive run, despite dealing with some harrowing circumstances. So that wraps us up for this week. Next week, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Corpus Christi Bay to talk about the Corpus Christi hooks. And until next time, remember, candlesticks always make a really nice gift. I would check where they're registered. And let's get to it.